Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to DSR Branding Presents. Join me as I interview brilliant business leaders on branding, marketing, design, and good business principles. These are people who think differently and have commercialized their creativity to do something remarkable. This episode is on writing better creative briefs with Tim Hughes. Tim is a global expert in creative brand strategy and the founder of The Brief Doctor. He's a Lifetime Achievement Award winner and former chair of Promax UK. A creative brief is a short one to two page document outlining the strategy for a creative project, typically between a client and an agency. Tim's business specializes in making these documents more compelling, which in turn results in better creative output. I find Tim's niche and focus inspiring. This episode is perfect for people who want to make brands better and marketers who want their messages to cut through. We cover the Brief Doctor's who, what, and why method of writing great creative briefs, the art of the single-minded proposition, the common mistakes people make when writing them. We discuss customer journeys and creating advocates, how to unite marketing and creative teams. Tim shares his favorite projects and how he responds to when clients ask him to make something go viral. We talk about LinkedIn marketing and tips on how to get better engagement, plus how brands get social media so wrong. I really appreciated Tim's sense of humor and his refreshing take on how brands can be authentic and unique. I had an awesome time talking with him. He's brilliant what he does, and I'm excited to share this episode. Just a warning, this episode features some colorful language. Well, good day, Tim. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Hi, how are you doing? (laughs) Good, thank you. Mate, we start these things... Uh, always with the same question. So a simple icebreaker, what's your favorite brand and why? Okay, so I've been thinking about this. Now, it might be slightly controversial given the current state of the airline industry, but one of my favorite brands is got to be Virgin Atlantic. And the reason for this is it's an absolute game changer. So if you think about aviation, Well, if you think about not the glory days where everything used to look like first class, if you think about the recent times of aviation, Virgin came in and they really changed the game. They took flying from something that was very formal, quite boring, uh, quite institutionalized into something that became fun and sexy. The whole brand just took it in a totally different direction. Suddenly, it was really fun to be on an airplane. There were these seatback televisions, even in economy that had never featured before. It was just a totally different flying experience. And uh, every time I fly with Virgin, I really fi- find that you get that sort of superstar treatment. So everything that infuses in the brand goes through the product experience. And I think that's really, really interesting and really important. Yeah, I always, I always thought the in-flight sort of um, safety videos that Virgin did, I think they were one of the first ones to really push the boundaries with those. And I thought they, you know, it really, um, it really changed the game in terms of what you could do in a safety video and actually have fun with it and have dancing and singing and uh, movie stars and things like that. I, thought, I loved how they did that. Everyone else has copied it since. So they, they had this huge range of animation that was, that was really fun. And, you know, other airlines have gone on to do better videos since. But yeah, I think everything about it, they have, um, so on the salt and pepper shakers, originally when they first launched, these were metal salt and pepper shakers. Uh, and they are plastic now, but on the bottom of it, it says pinched from Virgin Atlantic. It's oh, just those cool. little touches, <laughs> yeah, yeah, little touches from the brand that just make it really good. And I think they, they sort of, you know, the formality of sort of 
them as a challenger brand, they're up against British Airways, our, our sort of nation's flag carrier. And um, the difference you get in the sort of the very formal service against the very fun service you get on on um, Virgin is it's just really it's just really an immersive brand experience. Not to say that BA isn't good. You know, I'm a gold card member on BA. I like to fly with them a lot, but uh, but it's just a really different attitude. And I think it's one of those very few brands that infuse that personality in everything they do. Like um, if you if you're lucky enough to fly in business, you know, on BA they're very formal about getting your bedding out. You know, on Virgin they used to tuck you in. It used to be it used to be that that sort of fun. They used to give you a teddy bear on Virgin in business. <laughs> class when they put you to bed it's brilliant that's great you can't see that happening on other airlines i'm sure they're not allowed to do that now for <laughs> various lawsuit reasons but yeah that's the great. fun days of flying yeah well, i mean i imagine they're what they're doing now is changing a lot um i know virgin australia here is um is going through some massive changes and i think virgin is virgin atlantic uh like in the uk are they going through some similar yeah sort of downturn yeah, 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 massively. And obviously, you know, aviation's massively hit at the moment. And there's a big thing about them laying off staff. So, you know, culturally, you have to look. And I think that is a marketing decision as well. It's, it's very interesting, you know, that people talk about, you know, we're talking today a lot about marketing. Marketing is being a cost center. And actually, marketing is integral to how you're viewed and what the view of your company is. You know, it's a comms decision. If you're laying off staff because of a business decision is that something that's affecting how you're perceived as a brand and actually should you you know if that's a, a cfo decision if that's a you know chief operating operating officer and cfo's decision should they bring someone very senior into marketing to be part of that decision making process because it can destroy years and years of brand loyalty it can destroy everything you spent money on advertising to do if you're suddenly perceived as being a bad employer or a bad business and I think consumers are so much savvier these days where they can, they can read sort of between the lines on decisions and sort of pull companies up. Um, so companies can't get away with the same things or I think there's probably just a, a greater level of transparency with those decisions and people can sort of join the dots and go, hey, well, remember when you said all these things about culture and remember, you know, all these amazing Branson quotes that you had about treating your staff you know, treat your staff uh, a certain way and they'll treat the customer, they'll take care of the customers, those sort of thing. I'm paraphrasing. But um, yeah, it's very, it's, it's, it's very hard to sort of um, get away with things like that now. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, you know, without, you know, I don't know the decision-making process that, that's gone through with, with sort of someone like Virgin, but it's, it's also difficult for, you know, difficult for brands to, to behave in the way they need to financially because they are totally scrutinized by, mm. you know, their audience, particularly on social media. And, and it is very difficult if you have to make difficult decisions because you are being held up for things that people are often only seeing one side of the argument. I'm not saying that's an, as an excuse to excuse bad behavior or behavior that goes against your cultural message. But it is, it, we do live in this world that people are very, very, very quick to judge. So Tim, mate, to give me a bit of background, how did you get your start in the industry? So uh, my background is in television, so television marketing, and I kind of fell into it. So I'm from like a tiny little 
village in the country tiny little and in the country probably means a lot different to you over there in australia <laughs> yeah but for me it was yeah. Yeah. but for me it was cheshire and so i grew up very very tiny little place uh and then as soon as i could i wanted to move to a big city and there is only one really big city in the uk which is london so i went down to london and i studied there i studied drama and theater and when i came out of that i i sort of fell into pr and i was doing lots of different work experience internships. I did an internship at Nickelodeon, uh, which led to going on to a job at Paramount Comedy, which was a sort of a, a UK version of Nick at Night. And from there, I was there for many years. And then I went to BBC Broadcast, working on the UK TV brands. Then I went to Discovery. So I just fell into TV promotions. And it just used to be, you know, it used to be a really fun industry to work in. It still is, but it used to be a really fun industry to work in. Yeah. And uh, that's it. That was sort of my marketing background. I just fell into it, which I think a lot of people do. I, do, I don't think I even knew it existed as a subset of advertising, really, before then. And what made you decide to start The Brief Doctor? So The Brief Doctor was, there's quite a funny story that goes with this. So so I I ran a discovery, the sort of the, I started off a sort of on-air director there running strategy for a few channels. I was in charge of lifestyle entertainment channels. And then I ran strategy for the internal creative agency for about six or seven years. And after I left that, under a slight cloud, um, I was looking <laughs> at what to do. <laughs> There's always more of a story in this situation. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at, you know, what I should do. And I was sort of free, you know, doing a bit of freelancing, doing a bit of consultancy. And a friend who I used to work with remembered my briefs from Discovery. And they always used to be quite fun because I think when you're writing a brief, you have to really engage with the creative people. So... They said, would you, would you be able to write a couple of briefs from us, our marketing managers away? So I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. And these are what I would call a C-priority brief. They're for TV. You basically need to watch the sh- a couple of shows maybe and then write a brief for the audience. There's a bit of research involved. So I did sort of morning's work on this, you know, three briefs, whapped them out. They weren't too difficult. And I thought, what's a fair rate? And I think I charged about 500 quid a day there. So I thought, well, I'll charge them half a day rate, 250 quid. So I sent the three briefs in and I sent this one invoice in. And they said, this is great. We love the briefs, but we only have invoice one. We need two and three. And I thought, <laughs> I can't, really send, <laughs> can't really send two more invoices in. But obviously I did. So, you know, <laughs> 750 quid later for a morning's work, it was like we're in business. And I think that that's the interesting thing. You talk about finding your niche, finding what you are good, useful and valuable at. And that's where you can start to make a business. Yeah, I love the positioning. I mean, yeah, going through your site, it's very clear what you do. I'd love a bit of background of, you know, people, people listening to this who may not be familiar with what a creative brief is. Are you able to give me a bit of background on that? Yeah, and you know, you love the website because it's Helvetica all over. In fact, it's not Helvetica. I changed it. It's, it's Futura, Futura PT. But, yeah, you know, it's beautiful. We're both, very, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both very clean fonts, aren't we, in this situation? Yeah, so, so very simply, so I have quite a problem with briefs. So, so, you know, we all work in strategy and branding and, you know, everything we do is driven by a brief. But I don't think many people understand what it is. So lots of people who write briefs 
are quite junior in their organization. It's considered a task. So you'll be given a, something to do, which is called write the brief, and it will just basically be a list of things we want. Now, that is not what a brief is. A brief is posing a problem to creative people. So we have this saying within the brief talk. So one of our sort of our founding statements is we say, a brief poses a, po- a brief poses a problem that creative seeks to solve. So we are seeking from a business need, what is it you need to do? And then pose it as a question. So you inspire someone creative or solutions driven to come up with an answer. And it's up to you whether or not you buy into what they want. We also have this other philosophy. This is kind of like our founding value. And it's just that we believe that great briefs are the foundation of awesome creative. So if you don't provide the right background, the right insights, the right information, how can you expect creative people to go away and deliver what you want? Now, that could be anything. That could be an advert. It could be a website. It could be, you know, you do a lot of logo design, lots of marks, lots of branding. You know, you need to say, what is your business problem in order for me to come back and make something beautiful, creative that engages an audience? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I love that. Um, the idea of, of seeking to, you know, pose a problem and, and you know, the, the creative solution to that problem. I mean, a huge challenge is actually de- clearly defining and articulating that problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, that's the hardest thing to do because I think lots of people, when they're writing a brief, are not honest with themselves. So they portray themselves as, you know, the brand is portrayed as something wonderful and marvelous. And it's kind of like, <laughs> are you being, you know, you're probably really good, but are you really what you're saying you are in the brief? And then they're saying that the challenge is not what it necessarily is. And a lot, a lot of time when I get briefs, they're just a list of things you can't do, not a th- list of things you can do, or, or a list of things you want, or a list of impossible demands with a pittance of a budget. <laughs> that's, you know, that's always a good one. You know, we want a full rebrand. We want this, that, we want the other, and we've got $10,000 to do it. And it's like, yeah, I'm afraid, you know, we can do some good work for you, but <laughs> we can't do it on that budget. <laughs> yeah. And so who would you write these briefs for? We do them for anyone, really. So, so, so briefs are just one very small bit of our business. We don't. We we more empower people to write their own. So, so a lot of the things we would do if we were working on a big project, which would be could be anyone from like a big FMCG brand to an entertainment brand or anything like that, we would do the facilitation that goes before a brief. So, we would get all the stakeholders together. If they've got their research or focus groups already done, we would use that information or we could commission focus groups and we will work with those stakeholders to work out what that brief is. So, you know, a brief isn't just the final bit of paper that goes to the agency. It's that whole corporate philosophy. So we would help people work out what their values are, you know, what people can buy into. And do you know what? A lot of the funny thing with that is that most people generally know more or less what they want. So if you speak to the business owners, if you speak to their marketing people, they know what they want. They just can't articulate it. One of the things that we do within our structure is we we sort of go out and do workshops and teach as well as how to do these, these briefs. We talk about two different briefs. So we talk about a strategic brief and a creative brief. And a strategic brief is something that marketing writes for themselves. So they take all their facts and figures, they take all the research information, they take all the insights. And marketing people generally, you know, 
They might have done an MBA in marketing or whatever they've done. They like to write a lot of words. They like to cover a lot of facts and figures because that is what they are trained to do. They are trained to have the background and the structure in place to justify the spend. So we call that the strategic brief. And as a marketing person, you can write whatever you like in that. That is between you and your CFO. It can have all the numbers in it, but never, ever, ever give that to a creative person because they will cry. They do (laughs) not need to see that level of information. So we say you filter that into the creative brief and the creative brief can only have pertinent information to a creative mind. So that should have a who, a what and a why. Who are you targeting? Why are you doing it? And what are you selling? And then that goes through something that if you've ever seen me speak at a conference, you can see I'm very shy and retiring. We call it the Whitney Houston moment. So this is the point that I play on the stage one moment in time and sway along for a very long period of time. Because the one moment in time is your brief is not relevant unless it is happening right now or when you're launching the product. So I get I work with lots of TV brands and lots of TV brands in the same space more or less have the same programming. And I have read exactly the same brief many, many times for different channels. You can literally change the logo on the brief. You know, so what we say is it has to be pertinent to you and it has to be relevant to what is happening right now in the world. So you filter your who, what, why through your Whitney Houston one moment in time moment. And that is where you get to your single-minded proposition. And your single-minded proposition is basically the one thing above all else you are asking your agency to deliver. And when you get people writing this creative brief in a much simpler, much more focused format, it's something that you put in front of a creative and they go, oh my God, I get it. This is what I'm doing. And it gives them that question we talked about. It it gives them something that they answer on. So for a creative person as well, a brief like this is brilliant because when you come back with what you've delivered, it allows you to justify very, very simply what you've been asked to do. And then if you've delivered on the brief, it's up to the the marketing person who's commissioned it to then decide if they want to buy it or not, preferably at peak stage. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so what are some common mistakes marketers or account people would make when writing these briefs? So there's the ubiquitous brief, which is the, they just whap it off without, you know, really trying. Uh, there is the not getting the stakeholder to buy into it. So, so, so what I found a lot with TV is um, we used to have more roles in marketing. So you might have a VP of marketing at the top, then you might have a director sort of setting strategy. Then you might have one or more marketing managers, and then you would have a marketing exec. You might have an assistant as well. What I find in structures now is they kind of have someone at the very top, maybe a VP or a director, and they have lots of people at the bottom. So, so sort of junior junior manager maybe, and then marketing exec. What they've missed out is that sort of nuancing in the middle. And so people are never taught how to write briefs effectively. So you will find lots of people get their marketing exec to write a brief and they've no idea what they're doing it. They also don't sign off on it. So I've had cases before where you've got some very senior stakeholders who've got some very junior people to write briefs that they don't know what they're writing. They've not read it before it's gone out to an agency. You get to a pitch meeting and the person who's, you know, spending the money on it has no idea what they're there being pitched back to. They change the brief. It's, you know, that is really, it's a waste of everyone's time and resources. That happens surprisingly a lot. Yeah, it's crazy. 
which is crazy. <laughs> it is really crazy. And I, do you know what? I personally find that insulting. If you've not, if you've, if you're a sign off on a brief process and you've not contributed to it or signed that brief off before it's gone to an agency, you shouldn't be part of that project. Whoever signs off the brief should take full responsibility for it and be in the room when it's pitched back to. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. And so, I mean, you, you mentioned before getting to that single-minded proposition um, that that creative can clearly understand. Is that the secret to having a great creative brief, or or have you got some other ideas on on you know your sort of inside secrets of of getting to that perfect creative brief? I think if your if your ducks are in a row with your who, what, why, so so you've got all your insights in place and you can answer those questions. Those are questions that we say the creative or whoever's answering that brief should keep asking as well. Who am I targeting? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? If you can answer all of those questions and you have the research in the background. So what, I'm not saying that any, what, every brief you're doing, you have to commission a load of research, but you have to know what you're talking about. So my biggest, you know, I'm a very, very, very nosy person. So that's one of the reasons. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I love research. I want to know what everyone's yeah. doing. You know, I'm the sort of person that you're reading a book on the tube. I'm the one looking over your shoulder to see what the book is. You know, that, <laughs> the, the interest in life is what drives me. And I think that that is why I'm good at writing briefs. That's why I'm good at strategy is because I'm nosy. I want to know what people are like. So I always encourage people to, you know, get out and see who that audience is. Because I worked in TV and there was money and we did need to understand who the audience was, we used to do focus groups and I love focus groups, being behind a glass screen and seeing, <laughs> you know, what the audience, for me, it's like live theater. It's like, oh my God, it's another focus yeah. group. I absolutely love this. But so, so I think that that is really important. Whether you are doing focus groups or whether you are going out and speaking to people who your audience are, most most people who are commissioning or spending money on advertising have some level of research. You can go and find out if you know. So if you're selling, you know, if you're a small business or something and you're selling a product in a local shop or something, there is nothing to stop you. And I'm sure the shop person would love this, of you going in there and just looking at who the customer is, finding out what drives them. I think that's the biggest thing in marketing is understanding who your audience is and behaving like that. And I would say that... There is a certain inherent arrogance within marketers to write briefs that reflect themselves. And you have to always remember. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's something that we do in a negative way. It's just something we, we come from our own experience. So why would we not communicate that to others? And it's not. You have to get into the mindsets of really disparate people. And it's really fun. You know, it's really fun finding out what makes other people tick. You know, you, you, we talk a lot about, you know, writing little pen portraits. Now, and I have a kind of a, I, I love hate relationship with pen portraits because I think they are great at building up a profile of who your audience is. Sorry, what's a pen portrait? Oh, so sorry. A pen portrait is you might create um, a sort of an archetypal character. Oh, got so, it. Yeah. So, like a customer persona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Customer persona. Absolutely. Yeah. So you might create, oh, you know, and you might do this in the, you know, they're great to do at company meetings because you go, you know, our key audience member is Natasha. She's 21. She likes to cycle. She shops in her organic grocery store. But what happens when, <laughs> when you create, when you create 
too many of these and you sell them to the whole company, there is your Whitney Houston one moment in time all over again. They are great at that one moment in time, but they do not evolve. So what they do not reflect is what's happening last last week or something, you know, how does Natasha, our customer, react to Black Lives Matter? You know, those are the things that don't change with with these these portraits that stay in one moment in time. They don't evolve and you have to, this is where good marketing comes out, is when you can react to things that are happening in the environment, when you are nimble enough to know what your customer's response would be to that. And remember, remember with that, if you are talking to your potential customer, there is something quite scary about speaking to someone, you know, all in your face marketing, like, hello, what do you think about this? Um, they are not going to respond in a naturally organic and honest way. Often in focus groups, regardless of how open you make the questions, people will answer with what they think you want to hear. Yeah, and it's the same with if you if you go and corner someone in their natural environment, you will scare them. It's like you don't go up to, you know, if you're watching an animal in the park, not suggesting that customers are like animals. <laughs> no, no, we wouldn't suggest that. <laughs> the general public are not animals. You know, if you go up to a wild animal and shout boo at it, it will run away. So it's not, yeah. you aren't going to get a, a, an a necessarily true response if you go up and ask someone a direct question. It's better to observe, better to see trends, better to see, you know, build a whole lifestyle. And that is what they like to do, where they like to go, what music they listen to, what things they buy. What And it's, it's sort of a journey throughout their day. What gives them comfort? What gives them entertainment? What gives them a distraction? I love going that deep and thinking about their behavior in that sense and, you know, going as far as like what gives them comfort, you know, what, what are they listening to? I completely agree with the uh, what you were saying on focus groups and, and also interviewing people. I think focus groups are sometimes really great and I've, I've been involved in a few. I've actually been in focus groups and I've actually observed focus groups. But I think there, it does create a, an interesting sort of dynamic where you do have sometimes a dominating voice within the group who sort of steers the conversation and then you have everyone there who's getting paid. In Australia, you can't pay them money, but you can give them vouchers and things like that. So there's almost, they're trying to do a good job. They're trying to answer in a way that, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I'm sure there's some people in there who, are, you know, it might be their fifth focus group of the month or something like that. So they're an expert on they're an expert on everything. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. The going rate is about forty. You are allowed to pay in the UK, and the going rate is like oh, 40, okay. forty to sixty pounds. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. oh my god, you do a couple of those a week, yeah. And you do, <laughs> yeah. and you do, and then so trained moderators, they're trained to you know know a bullshitter when you see one. So so they do they do dis, you know the moderator will discount that person or you know better still get them out of the room uh, but but yeah and then and lots of those those focus groups do work best if you if you have pre homework that you've given people so you do actually know you know agencies who supply people to focus groups as well are you know they're given a brief and paid quite well to find you the right people yet again you do find the same people going in time and time again it is great to i would say if you're if you're working in marketing and you've never been in a focus group technically you're not allowed to participate in one but they're never going to know go and do a few focus <laughs> groups because they're actually yeah. they're great fun 
you know, I've done them. I've yeah, snuck yeah. into them before. Now they're brilliant. <laughs> and, 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 you know, to be, pay, to be paid or to be given vouchers for, you know, what do you think is great. It's like free therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I do like what you said about observing um, and sort of sitting back and watching what the customers do or what the shoppers do. Um, I think, you know, what people say they're going to do and what people actually do are very different sometimes. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and- Absolutely. Uh, Particularly with very middle-class people. Yes. Yeah. It's like, you know, I might choose to buy organic or free range, but when I'm at the restaurant and I find out that the chicken isn't free range, well, you know, maybe I don't eat free range tonight because (laughs) it's not an option sort of thing. Whereas I can sort of say- Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm at McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm at at KFC after a night on the town sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. But if asked in a focus group, I'd probably, you know, answer, oh, yeah, no, I really care about these sort of things. And I really, I really make sure that I My do. But That's right. So, um, so, yeah, I think watching what people actually do. Those are great drivers to put on something like a brief. You know, if I'm writing, what did you call it? I keep calling them pen portraits. What was your, what was your phrase? Uh, customer persona. Customer persona. Yeah. So, you know, it's all about being an archetype about people. And that's a very, that's a, I'll just make one point about this. It's a big you might get called out by saying you're making stereotypes. No, I'm not making stereotypes. I'm making archetypes. I'm bringing out groups of people that have certain different reactions. This is not about profiling anyone. This is not about making any decision about certain people's lifestyle choices. It's about it's about connectivity. And I think that that's really important. But those are, when you talk about, you know, if I was making the one for Dan, you know, Dan always eats organic, Dan always exercises, but on a Friday night, Dan has a kebab after his, you know, couple of glasses of Chardonnay. <laughs> you know, those are things that when you put on a brief, those are things that immediately the creative person responding suddenly goes, there's an eccentricity, there's something different. And those are the things that when you make a piece of advertising that communicates back to someone, it mirrors something that with their life and it has that little... um what did Hitchcock it's used to call? That moment of truth. Yeah, it's the red herring. It's the it's that it's that moment that sort of twists it. That's where you add humour in or warmth in, and that makes that's where brands really connect people. You know, we've we talked quite a lot recently about. Um, uh, people who are customers, the journey you want customers to go on is they start, get them in as a customer, they become a fan, and then they start selling your product to other people because they love your product. And that's when they become an advocate. And that's the most valuable customer. And it's when you know little bits about their lives and you mirror them back in a in a brand personified way, that's when you really get your customer gets value from you and you get value back from your customer. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for deep, rich connections. And so how can people get more out of their creatives that they work with? Pay them more? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you know what? You know what? Some of them, some of them pay them less. You know, if you're talking about, yeah, if you're talking about like the the relationship with big ad agencies, you know, there were very few ad agencies that used to make all the adverts. You know, we know who all the big names were. And you used to be paying millions and millions of pounds or dollars for these beautifully well-crafted adverts. But, you know, 50% of it was going straight into the two owner's pockets before you even start <laughs> so so it is about it's about setting it's about setting realistic budgets because there's no point you know using an agency of particularly well you know crafted people and then paying them rubbish salary for it there's you know there's not there's nothing worse than 
really underpaid. You're not going to get a performance out of someone who's like, can you do all of this for four pence? I'm sorry, I've, I've kind of <laughs> gone, gone off on a rant there. And kind no, of no, no. But apart from maybe, uh, yeah, pay, paying more or paying um, a, fa- a fair wage for creative, what, what are other ways that you, you find uh, helpful to get more out of the creatives you work with? When we talked about writing the single-minded proposition, one of the things I do a lot is I write the who, what, why, and then get whoever the marketing person and whoever the creative director is to sort of go away and write the single-minded proposition separately and then come back together and see if they match. Because a lot of the time they do. And if not, you negotiate the two until they do. So I look at a brief as a living, working document. You kind of, there's a bit of wiggle room until you get that final decision between the marketing person and whoever's responding to it. And that's when you lock down that brief. So it feels as though everyone is part of that process. I also think, you know, an in-person briefing is very, very important. And whether that's, you know, you can do that on Zoom or do it over the phone. You just need to make the effort. There's nothing worse than, do you know what? I hear about this all the time in America, that people write a brief and they send it out to, you know, five or six agencies. And it's up to you if you want to pitch back on this brief. And I'm like, and, and one of the things is on their contractual agreement, you're not allowed to have a conversation. It's kind of like, no, we issue the brief, then we get the responses, and then we'll decide who we want to work to. And it's just like, why do you even bother responding to that? There's an inherent lack of trust or conversation. You choose me because I'm a good creative agency. You brief me. You give me all the information I need to know. We have a conversation about it. And then we decide if this is the right project for all of us to go forward with. I just think that idea of, you know, pissing in the wind sorry to be rude with a brain no no i completely like, agree i'd just be like fuck off <laughs> but i just you, think it, <laughs> i think it just like sets up crazy un, unreasonable expectations of here's something respond to it you know based on what we've written on the page and if you get it right then we'll actually work like normal human beings together you know we'll treat each other with yeah, respect yeah, so, but but yeah, we'll treat yeah, you yeah. like shit to now for now and then if you <laughs> crawl over broken glass to uh to get the business <laughs> and then yeah. we'll be nice to each other yeah so who else works like that i tell you what to do what we're gonna do is we're going to not pay you any money but you do all the work <laughs> now then if we like what you've done and our friend isn't working at the other agency who's done all right work we will pay you for the work you've done over the last few weeks otherwise you've done all that work and paid all your staff and worked overnight and we're just not going to pay you because we slightly although it answers our brief you know we've gone with someone else yeah, I, I just find the whole logic ridiculous. And so that's why, you know, if you're doing, a, if you're working on a competitive pr- pitch, I always think you should have a pitch fee, even if it's just a nominal amount of money that just almost says, look, I know you're going to be working for free on this, but here is some money just so you can all live. Um, I also think, you know, you shouldn't be really looking at more than three agencies. They should be agencies that you already have a relationship with. So you've, you've met them, you've associated that they're going to be great for this project. And there is, you know, you're looking at it as a 33% chance of getting that work. And the pitch is very, very nominal. It shouldn't be going into any detail. You shouldn't be, it should be, you know, we've assessed that you are great for this project. This is the route we might we want to go down. What would it look like if we went with you? And it probably should be that those people are, you know, slightly different disciplines. You know, this is our, we've identified, you know, we, we have a go-to animation guy kind of thing. 
look, we, we don't know if this route should be animation. Could you give us a little bit of work to say, if we gave you this brief, would, what would this look like animation? What would this look like, you know, live action? What would this look like if we didn't, if it was just a print ad or something? And it should be people that you've gone out of your roster of people and gone, I, I totally, I, you are the three people that I totally get. Or you should be identifying someone and giving them some development money. And going, look, we really like you. We've got this brief. We think you are the right person for it. But we need to go to someone higher up the company or finance or something. So, so what would your response be to this? Here is a decent amount of money to start it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, there's, a, there's a really good bl- uh, book on this um, called Win Without Pitching, written by a guy called Blair Enns. Uh, he's a Canadian oh, yeah, yeah. writer. Yeah, he's brilliant. I've... Um, read that and then he's got a him and a, another um another guy david c baker have a great podcast which i often refer to uh called two bobs and they often talk about things like this um and disrupting yeah, yeah, the pitch you, phase yeah you, do you know what the funny thing is the guy i was talking to you before joel pilger at rev think who talks about as a small business you know creating your genius he does he does like this series of dinners all around the world and blair was the guest when he did it in london oh that's cool yeah yeah i saw blair speak at um in brisbane and then i did a day course down in sydney with him um and yeah he's brilliant brilliant take on it and he talks about how you've got to disrupt the pitch which is similar to what you were saying before about you know have a minimum pitch fee or have something that sort of is different to maybe the other agencies contending and it actually forces the client to um, it forces them to sort of think about you differently. Um, but ideally you want to disrupt the, disrupt the process. So if they say you're not allowed to meet in person, you say, well, it's our policy to meet beforehand in person. And then you can gauge whether or not you can gauge whether or not they're, they're likely to choose you. Cause if they just say, if they rule it out straight away, then you are never going to have a chance anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just, someone was telling me that the logic is because it creates this level playing field. And I'm like, bullshit you know call it out that's absolute bullshit it's it's not you're not you're not protecting anyone within that or if that is your thing then put a chunky you know if you're talking to and and lots of these things they send those briefs out to maybe 10 agencies it's like no way no way these got to be you know the most you should ever as a as a creative business the most you should ever go into is you know a five-way pitch and it, and it should be very much top line and at five agencies in there there should definitely be a fee you know three is an acceptable you know set of odds preferably with a fee maybe it's a really good client that's going to come out with some business that have gone and researched you and know they want to work with you if i've ever if i've ever you know on my client because i'm poacher and gamekeeper so you know if i got my client hat on yeah i would be i would be very happy just to go to one person and i might have to do i might be asked to do due diligence with another business which i would contend with finance why is my due diligence not research interview taking this person out bringing them into the company if you don't feel you know, that I should be going to just one person. They can come and present their creds to everyone. Quite happy with that. I don't see why there is any relevance of giving them an active live brief and having them work on it yeah. for no money. Yeah. 
I like what no, you said before. You wouldn't do that. Do you know what? You wouldn't do that with a you know a finance job interview, would you? You couldn't just do my tax return, and then if I like the way you've done my tax return, I'll pay you for it. That would never happen in a different industry. So why does it seem acceptable within creative? If you get me a good return this year, I may pay you and come back next year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like what you said before about um, getting collective buy-in to the brief. So actually getting the the marketing manager and getting the creative to sort of have a bit of ownership over that. I think that's a really, I really like that in the sense of they buy into the concept more because they feel like they've had a hand in developing it. Um, so they're actually helping, they've sort of helped define the problem themselves and then they have a role in solving it. I think that's always far better when it is that collaborative approach and it's something we try to do with clients as well is really get them involved in either the, you know, the branding design solution as well. So they feel like there's a bit of own, ownership or agency over the identity. Yeah, and I think that, I think it's really good as well if you've got someone, lots of places don't have account management. So, so you know, I work in TV a lot. Account management has only probably come in in the last sort of 10 years. They've often had like a production manager who's done this. And they're all very well-meaning, but they're about getting things done. And, you know, the whole notion of account management is, and this could be, you know, most marketing people are to a certain extent account managers anyway. It's about holding the hand of the client and, and having that sort of that dialogue, making sure they're included, showing them scamps, showing them the process. And a lot of this, if you're like a, if you're quite a small business, marketing is a very big and scary spend. So you need to know that people are taking you seriously, that your concerns are going to be dealt with, that you're going to come out with this something that is value for money. And bear in mind, marketing should always be, whatever you spend on marketing should be bringing you back more in sales. So whether that's, you know, whether that's brand reputation is over a long period of time, or whether that's a specific campaign that drives certain product, then you should be getting a return on that investment. And it's up to that sort of account management to make sure that that process is smooth and that everyone feels consulted. There is nothing worse than and this is kind of like the old agency style hand over the brief you know here's your creative aren't we wonderful let's enter it into awards and you're kind of like yeah but my concern is it's a beautiful advert but it doesn't do what it said on the brief you know it doesn't solve any of my problems ah who cares it's wonderful and you know some of those things were so wonderful that they did go on to sell it but it's a totally different landscape now you're not looking at a world of you know 30 second spots, cinema trailers and billboards with some maybe magazine inserts. You know, there's a whole raft of different media that is some of it is super effective. Some of it is super ineffective. Some of it's a nice to have. Some of it, you know, can be, if not managed correctly, just, you know, worse than doing nothing. It's a really it's a really difficult industry to navigate. And it's, and, and it's really difficult for, you know, a small business owner to work out, you know, what is their optimum media plan? Even if, you know, even if they use a studio or a media planning agency and commission some creative and someone handles that for them, it's quite blinding to see on paper, you know, this is our media plan. We're doing this on Twitch, on TikTok, on Twitter. And, you know, we're buying these billboards that cost, you know, £45,000 a week. You're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I could have two extra staff members. Like, it's scary. <laughs> yeah. And, and do you know what? A yeah. lot of media agencies have done it in the past to blindside people with, you know, media is where people make their mark up. 
So, you know, sell the more expensive stuff because we know it's going to be creative. Mm, do we? We know we're going to get our money on this if we sell this to our client. It seems like media to me is, um, I mean, it's something we dealt with a lot more when I was in a creative agency. So we'd work with different media agencies. These days, being more branding and design, it's not something we have a great hand in. But I think it's an industry that's been disrupted massively by um, by Facebook and Google, who are you know, now commanding a lot of the lion's share of spend. Um, but it does seem to me like it's, it's one of those places where you'd love to have someone sort of uh, free of any biases or um, conflicts because you know, the traditional getting paid a commission for going on certain things. Like it's, it, yeah, it, to me, it's, it's, it's a place if I was going to, if I could give any advice to clients, it's probably to have a really good open relationship with whoever is, uh, is booking their media to make sure that they are getting, you know, a good sort of equal spread across different platforms or at least knowing where their money's going and, and how it's going to deliver a return. Yeah, and you know what? Well, I used to work with a really great media agency in London, and and we used to pay them a yearly fee rather than, you know, them take a cut on the media. Now, whether or not there were some deals that they also got a cut on, who knows? That was not in our contract. But yeah, I think it's I think it is really difficult, and I think it's really difficult to understand. You know, if you want to do a, a post with a big influencer, you're looking at a million dollars. And it's kind of like, really? Is that value for my money? (laughs) You know, and maybe it is. But I just find that, you know, blindsidingly high for one post. You know, if you look, and and God, I I judge, I judge so many award categories. Like every year I'm on so many awards judging panels. And the number of tapes I see, which was like, and and we did this and that and that and the other and are... Sales increased by 123%, or on our, we had 300 million views on social <laughs> media. And it's like, but you're not telling me if that's effective or not. You're giving yeah. me these weird metrics. Yeah, these, metrics, these vanity, vanity metrics that look really good yeah, on an yeah. award submission, but yeah, yeah. what's the actual return to the client's bottom yeah, line? Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We always used to have this, uh, this thing, you know, when we made, when, when I was marketing manager and commissioned these tapes, if it was a huge number, I'd put a figure. If it was a low number, I'd put a percentage. And um, <laughs> when, when the that's guy, really you know, uh, yeah, I used to have this brilliant editor, Paul Bouvier, who used to do all my sales tape for me because he was the genius. He is, the, in fact, I probably shouldn't say his name because he goes out in the UK and people would go and steal him. He's a fantastic editor. And um, every time I used to go in, I used to say, because 100% of fuck all is still fuck all. <laughs> that, used to be, that used to be my guiding measure in those sales tapes. But we used to be on fire because we used to make, him and me, we used to win. And this is the thing with awards. We used to win so many awards with a really good tape you know we would be a contender but there's a big difference on these awards that you know people make a lot of money from awards you know the awards bodies and there is a lot of difference between a gold silver and a bronze and it might not necessarily be the creative and the effectiveness of the campaign i'm just saying that it might be how good your entry was speaking of projects what's one of your favorite projects that you've worked on well so I'm going to go for my favorite project was um, a project I did about, oh God, it's, it's at least 10 years ago, probably a little bit longer, which was a rebrand when I was at Discovery with a brilliant marketing, uh, marketing director, marketing manager uh, called Stephen Doherty, who's no longer, he's no longer with Discovery. He's, he's living in Edinburgh with his family, doing all sorts of very technological and finance things. But we rebranded 
this channel called Real Time Extra into something called Real Time Shared. And it had absolutely no money. So we did a full channel rebrand including all the assets we shot we filmed with this there was an agency we worked with which is no longer alive called devilfish who we filmed this whole identity and got it all on air for less than thirty thousand pounds and i just remember that we had to film four idents in the middle of winter we didn't have any money so we were driving around in the back of my old volkswagen polo with the heat it was snowing at one point with the heating on full blast we had to go to garden center to buy extra clothes because it was that cold but it was such a good rebrand it's it's still on air today this channel god it makes a couple of million quid a year but has very little spend on it you know it doesn't even have a website it's that lo-fi but it really super served the audience because it was totally focused so so the name was a really narrative name it was called real-time extra before didn't really mean anything it was a sort of a generic leisure channel for men for older slightly down market if i can say so men so we rebranded into discovery shared it was a surrogate shared it was exactly what they wanted so it sort of had these these sort of subject matters there was sort of motors there was fishing there was sort of a generic outdoors and I think there was one other thing. I can't really remember what it was now. But we had these these sort of these beautiful metal plates made up, which was each each um, each subject matter because the the schedule was so narrative. Each subject matter had a color and it had a logo, and the whole schedule was identified by: is it this? Is it motors? Is it fishing? Is it outdoors? And it was it was such a beautiful identity. And when I left Discovery, one of the things I regret is that I never we had all of these metal sheds that metal um, plates that were physically used in the idents that were never going to get used again. And I really wish I'd stolen one now, but I never did. <laughs> What's an ident? Is that just like a short sort of uh, like fifteen second ad or something like that? Or yeah, 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 yeah. So it's all the sort of branding and identity on the channel. So um, yeah. so the whole kid of parts is is these would be little little. Um, I don't know if you do them in Australia, but we, we used to have voiceovers that would go into a show. So it would say, now on Discovery Shared, whatever uh, yeah, it is, yeah. or Come, coming up in half an hour. So they would speak over these, and there were these four thematic ones. But we also had, you know, a full kit of parts, as you would with any, you know, sort of digital rebrand. You know, there were sort of straps, lower thirds, you know, identity work, anything that went to, you know, this channel probably didn't spend anything in press, but all the assets were so pertinent and beautiful in a very lo-fi manner. And it was just a really fun project because I, I think it came from an audience insight. You know, it was too complicated. No one what it, knew what it was. We needed to make it a standalone brand. We needed to keep the discovery in. And it just, this whole sort of tool shed of, you know, old blokes in the UK, they all have a shed. They keep all their shit in it. And it was just such a lovely, such a lovely project to work on and such a lovely package. And it's still on air today. You know, they've because it's one of those things that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It, it still exists. And it cost absolutely nothing. I think that's quite rare sometimes to have marketers respond to something where you just use plain, simple language and it sort of is what it says it is. It doesn't, you don't use the industry jargon or you don't try to make up a, you know, made up word or something like that. It's just, it's very plain and simple, but it's effective. Yeah, it was true. We used to call those Ron Seal jobs. You know, it does what it says on the tin. <laughs> Love that. 
Yeah, well, we, do you know what? Do you know what? That is a very when we talk about briefing people, prioritization is something that's very important. So if you are doing a very important AA star campaign, then you spend more time on that brief. But if you are doing, we have this thing. So in TV, we call them C priorities. So they're appointment to view priorities. So if you've got a show that people know and you want to make a clip based promo to promote it, so it might be, you know coming up this week on the max mass singer or whatever and it's and it just needs to tease that episode you know it doesn't need a huge overarching creative thought it just needs some good context those are what we would call in tv a c priority and those ones you know the brief can literally be one line long it can be the guest this week is so and so and and those are the ones where when you start having a relationship with your creative those are the ones that they know for a C priority, they are going to get a one-line brief. For a B priority, they're going to get a side of A4. For an A star priority, they're going to get two sides of A4 because you should never go over two sides of A4 on a brief. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's about having that relationship and that trust. And I think that, that when you build up trust with whoever your creative people are, that's when you can have shorter briefs. But, but what I always say is you must always, always, always have a brief because it's, it's that trust and contracting. So many times if, you, if you're responding without a brief, the goalpost can move. You need something written that allows you to both trust each other. If, if there's any lack of clarity there, you can get into a blame game. And there is nothing worse about destroying a relationship between strategic and creative if, if they start fighting with each other, which is something that, you know, I've always had a real issue with when, you know, if you're an in-house team or something, marketing and creative are not, they're not two disparate ideas. They are the same department it might be that you don't have a creative function within your marketing team, but creative is part of the marketing function. It is, even if you are the client, you are responsible for that area. You are not, it's happened sometime in the 90s that I think someone thought we can, we can try and align marketing more with finance. You are not. Marketing and creative are one thing. That advert that you create at the end of the day, it's all your work. It's not, we did this, you did that. Yeah, yeah, And the more agree. that those... Yeah, more of those things think differently, which is what I don't. What happens with some people? You know, some people have quite hostile relationships with whoever's delivering their creative. It's kind of like, why? <laughs> Surely that's the fun bit of your job. Yeah, absolutely. But have you ever had clients come to you and ask, you know, we want this to go viral, or you know, come up with this, oh, we yes, want it to go viral? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, every day. <laughs> yeah. What do you say? That goes viral. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, you you have to kind of like, there are lots of things, you know, my philosophy on this is if you want something to go viral, I will film my cat with your logo on it because that <laughs> will go viral. You know, that, that is the only thing that works. So, so animals doing silly things are the only things you can guarantee that will go viral. And, and it's worse than that. With brands, they ask for, you know, I want my logo on it. I want the tune in. I want to feature the key talents. I want to put a sponsor on. I want to go viral. Well, those are all the recipes that will not make something go viral. If you want something to go viral, you have to do something super creative, super different in a really interesting space so 
it's quite difficult to, to sort of say this back to people who are left brain, right brain sort of thinkers because they will go, well, what if we did a dance? Well, yeah, a dance could go viral. I can't guarantee it could go viral, but it needs to be something. It needs to be something that has never been seen before. And then you need to align that with your brand, but you probably can't have your logo on it. So do you host a stunt or something? And how is that true to your brand values? So if you want something to go viral and you are a very small C conservative brand who does something slightly unethical, you are going to go viral for the wrong reasons. You are going <laughs> yeah. to become David Brent in the office. Yeah. <laughs> if you are the cool, funky brand who just goes and does something, you know, a little bit cool, you probably stand a high chance of going viral. Always if you do something funny, always if you do something with animals, you stand a higher chance of going viral. But you have to then think, it goes back to that sort of matrix bingo. What does that add to your sales? What does that add to your brand? You can make some funny videos. Funny videos are nice. I don't know if people, people certainly don't share stuff with big logos on it. Put it that way. No, that's right. I mean, and, and probably outside marketing um, or branding industry. You know, we, we in the industry might share things that are, you know, well executed or well done, but it's not the stuff that you share, you know, that gets shared between friends on, on social media. Also, you know, you can spend an absolute, some people think, you know, you spend an absolute fortune on a beautiful, a beautiful ad. People will share it. You go, they will not share it. It is an advert. People do not share adverts. <laughs> yeah. Why people, would I share? I, as know? much as I'd love, I'd love people to think like they go home and they like turn on the TV and be like, yes, a fresh, fresh batch of new yeah. creative that I can watch. Really? Like how, how yeah. good to interrupt my program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they think, you know, there is a perception, you know, by some people that, you know, we will get a famous celebrity and people will share it and they go they do not give a shit about this celebrity selling whatever yeah you know, i don't think anyone's ever said you know shared a nespresso advert despite how wonderful george clooney is <laughs> i don't think people go wow clooney's in this let's share it <laughs> it's his best work <laughs> yeah i'm sorry to clooney fans out there i think clooney would agree i don't think he i think he's laughing all the way to the bank oh, thinking completely. you know this is great money but i don't expect my fans to share this. I, I love how celebrities will do ads overseas as well, where they mark, you know, like there's, um, I know Roger Federer is very well known for doing, you know, different, different campaigns with brands across all over the world. Um, but it's great. You know, they can, they can go over to Japan and do a commercial that won't get aired on, you know, Australian TV or on um, American TV and, and protect their, their brand in one place. And, um, and just, yeah, like you said, laugh all the way to the bank. Uh, yeah, it was the Joey in Friends, wasn't it, when he did the uh, Japanese advert for lipstick? <laughs> it's the classic thing. And you know, the, you know, this is this is this is not a new thing. Do you remember Clive James always used to do those TV programs where he used to pull all the best ads from around the world? Yeah. And some of them were just cringeworthingly awful. You know, there when you go viral, when you do yeah. something so bad, it is embarrassing. But, you know, if I were a Hollywood star and, you know, someone offers me a million quid to do something, I'd probably do anything for a million quid. <laughs> I have no morals. I work in marketing. <laughs> yeah. A million quid? Yes, I'll do it. Pass me the costume. <laughs> well, Tim, but I'd love to know what you do outside of work as a bit of an escape because, yeah, I can't imagine you spend all night and day, well, you might spend all night and <laughs> yeah. day writing briefs um, and, and yeah. helping, helping brands sort of create messages that cut through. Um, but, yeah, so what do you do outside of work? 
So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, I do. I just write briefs all day. No, so do you know what? One of the funny things is that I do is I do anti-gravity yoga. And so I'm yes. living in Denmark for the summer. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, so I have this hammock. So it's like this upside down, this upside down aerial yoga thing. And um, because you have to have height, you know, it needs to be about seven foot to hang this thing up. I found there's a forest near us and it's got one of these outdoor gyms with monkey bars. And so I've been, I've been taking my hammock down, cycling through the forest and putting it up on this outdoor gym, on these monkey bars, because it's just the perfect height to do my yoga. And you've got people running through the forest and they suddenly find me upside down in a purple <laughs> hammock. And they're like, what the hell is going on? So they always, you know, I'm living in this little village in Denmark where my partner lives for the summer. And uh, they already think, you know, he's the crazy British guy because I'm trying to learn Danish. And yeah. it's really, really hard. So basically, I can speak like child-level Danish. So they're already laughing at me at this now. Now they're like, he's now hanging upside down in the forest. They're like, crazy English man, crazy English man. <laughs> but you know, I get out with it. It would be it would be quite a sight to stumble onto in the forest of um just this bloke hanging from uh, yeah a yeah. hammock doing some <laughs> downward dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe with some crazy tunes on, you know, plinky yeah. plonky music in the forest. But I do think that that's, you know, if you do work in, you know, TV, advertising, all of these things, they're big drinking, you know, the big party cultures. And, you know, I'm not so, not as young as I used to be now. So I think you, you do have to have, I think the older you get, and particularly to be focused on things, I think exercise is really important. I find, you know, we talk a lot about mental health and things these days. I find if, I, if I'm not exercising quite a lot, I kind of, it sends me into dark places. I need to, I need to keep up exercise. I think, think as you get older, it's one of the things you really need to embrace. Yeah, completely agree. Get away from too much industry. You have to work out what your engagement level is. I think it's really weird because, because sort of like, it's almost the, the times you're learning most. This is one of the weird things about our industry is when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you have this, amazing confidence that you can just you you kind of almost don't see what failure looks like so you just kind of get on with it and you just there's lots of people who just really thrive but without necessarily the skills and it's only when you kind of have all the skills in place that you start to worry i think it's when you start to own your own business or things like that (laughs) you're kind of like you or other people become reliant on you you know you find this a lot when people have children is that they suddenly become quite scared of their own actions and they become a bit more risk averse. And I think that that's, that's the great thing if you work with people of different age groups is that you can, you as a, a writer of briefs or something, you can bounce off younger people. You don't need to know, you don't need to know what the latest platform is. You need to be aware of it. But, you know, I don't necessarily need to know what's going on on TikTok or Twitch. You know, I can use people who do, who know that medium better, and I can look at the value of a media plan against it, then maybe they don't associate so well and say, what is the spend? Is this spend worth it? Am I going to reach my audience? That is one interesting thing. I know I digress all the time on these things. No, that's all right. One of the things I get asked a lot about brands is sort of like your Facebook present or your LinkedIn present or your Twitter present. It's actually, yeah, it's something I'd love to to ask you about on that because it's, as you were talking, yeah, I'd love to know, um, your thoughts on on brands on on those platforms and then this is the thing is that i'm not 100 percent sure on my opinion on them i think a lot of them the media is the the cost to get into them is very very expensive i i 
kind of like look at this for some brands and go, you'd be better going for more traditional media. And I think with, um, you know, with, with some of the clients that, that you guys have, you know, it's kind of like, look at things like local radio, things that have gone slightly out of fashion. You're going to get much more bang for your buck and you're going to get really right in with your consumers. Local press, you know, are you worth paying this for? You know, when they're paying, when your metric to pay is, you know, uh, an exposure to the ad rather than a click through on the ad. And then you look at, you're putting in a, you know, you've got a, say, say your business is, you know, a fuel business or something like that. And they're saying, spend some money on Facebook. It's like, who in your your audience is looking at Facebook? You know, I have very few brands I, I even have a relationship with. You know, I get served advertising on Facebook, but they are for very big brands. You know, I don't think it's a particularly effective thing. I don't use the, I don't use Facebook at all for work. I have it totally locked down as a personal thing. You know, Brief Doctor doesn't have a profile on Facebook. We have a very small profile on Twitter, and I don't use it because I think Twitter is <laughs> Jack Dorsey can fuck off. Basically, I think it's a hateful. <laughs> It's a hateful place. I just yeah. don't think it brings any good to society. I would challenge people to go on Twitter and come off feeling better about themselves or their yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, I don't know why it, it, it is. And I don't blame the platform for this. I don't know why people think that they can behave like that. And what I find very disturbing is, and this happens on Facebook as well, is that people will write a nice, pleasant post, something positive and good, and then you read the comments below and they are just hateful. They are hateful and unnecessary by people yeah. who have no comeback. There's no right to reply. It just, yeah. I don't know why I'm going on to a whole rant about this, but from no, a no, brand point of view, then I don't see why you should, I don't necessarily see why you should be in that, in that space. You know, and uh, prove me wrong, Facebook. And maybe I would be more, in t- you know, uh, sort of considerate of buying an ad. But I think... You know, you will see how much brands put into, you know, community outreach to having a profile on these places. They spend time and money with it and then they get a load of hate back for whatever they're doing. You know, I, I think that you have to you have to include social media as part of your overall media plan. What effect or what level you engage with it, I think, is up to you as a brand. And there are some brands who are great on it. There was um, oh, someone sent me um, someone sent me a great Black Lives Matter thing last week. It was Yorkshire tea, yeah, which wow. make a great tea. Someone had uh, someone had put in. They'd done a Black Lives Matter post, and someone had gone into their sort of comment section and said. I can't believe you are supporting this cause. That's the last time I buy any Yorkshire tea. I'm going to PG Tips from now on. And uh, and then um, uh, uh, then so and then the, then they went on. So their marketing person went on and wrote something like, "That's fine. We don't want racists buying our tea." <laughs> and, and then PG Tips. There was a great line, and I can't think of the line. PG Tips also went on and said, "Don't buy our tea, our tea." <laughs> either and there was a there was a payoff to that line and i have to think of what it was i can't remember but they had such a such a funny line with tea in it oh wow and i can't think oh, what wow. it was i'll have to think of what it was and send it yeah, to you yeah. but it was two brands paying off against each other for a good cause saying go away racist if i remember by the end i'll bring you back i can't believe yeah. i can't think of that it's um it, I, solidarity. I love that. I love that. It was oh, solidarity. That's that very was good. The line. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Very good. I love a pun. I completely agree with um, your sentiment there of, you know, as a brand, and it, it's funny because I think a lot of brands have come around to this idea of we have to be on social media in some way or force, be it we pay to be on there or we actually create a page. Uh, I think it used to have the hardest, you know, social media agencies used to have the hardest job because it was free to be on these platforms. So therefore, it should be cheap. And it's like, well, it doesn't work like that. It's just another place to communicate. It doesn't, you know, like writing a Facebook ad or writing a Facebook post is not easier than writing a newspaper ad or necessarily like, you know, the same sort of thought level has to go into these things because it's still a piece of communication. Um, But what would happen would be, um, you know, a marketing agency would have a social media agency and then they'd have a, you know, an offline agency and things like that. And it's like, well, there's no consistency of, of brand message or voice or anything like that. So you have a slightly different tone and you might have a different group talking on one thing or the other. I just think it, it seems a bit crazy, but I also agree. I don't think, you know, I don't go on Facebook and be like, Oh, I can't wait to see what, you know, what my local uh, electricians put up today, you know, like. <laughs> so, how, how deep do you have to get into your timeline to, to be exposed to that message? But I, t- I totally agree because it is about tone of voice and it's about brand value. So, so if you are expect, if you are, if you are not a risk taking brand, then, then why would you why would you be in a risk taking medium, uh, behaving in a totally different way? Why, why would you go to this dumpster about, fire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is, a, there is a, you know, there's a great integrity about if you speak in a, you know, if you are a sensible, serious brand, you know, speak in a sensible, serious tone of voice. Yeah, and you don't have to. You don't have just because everyone else is you know, speaking like a local radio DJ doesn't mean you have to. <laughs> Suddenly, so often you get into this social thing and everyone, you know, speaks like a 12-year-old. Yeah, yeah. There's, nothing, there's nothing worse than, you know, the dad picking up the kids from the disco, being down with the kids. It's yeah, kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Go away. What is the, there is a phrase, isn't there? Okay, boomer. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Get, just get off it. This is not for you. I completely agree. I think um, our advice often is... Um, you know, if we're working with B2B businesses, for example, you know, don't have, you don't necessarily have your business has a page, but your, your CEO or your, you know, your key people could have pages and build the audience that way. Cause, um, you know, much, especially say LinkedIn, like I'd much rather follow, um, people on LinkedIn and, and then know what their company, you know, what company they work for, as opposed to following just a, a group of companies or brands. Yeah. And you, and you will see, if you look at the metrics on the page, even for massive, even for massive companies, they get they get they get very little engagement on LinkedIn. So even if they have you know three million followers, look at what a post will get. It's mm. nothing. Yeah, LinkedIn is a really we could have a whole discussion about LinkedIn marketing because it's it's a it's a really interesting it's a really interesting area to talk about, <laughs> which which brings up want, a whole level. I don't want, <laughs> yeah. I don't mind touching on it because I, I do have some thoughts on it. I think LinkedIn is is this, like this primitive uh, look at me. I don't know. Like, it's so basic sometimes. It's like how people talk on LinkedIn, and I'm probably guilty of it as well. Is never how I'm I talk super anywhere. Guilty. Never how I talk anywhere else. It's like, hey everybody, look how awesome I am. I did this thing. How good am I? And then like, and then other people will like hijack and be like, that's really cool. But have you thought about this? And then they'll start talking about their thing in the comments or something like that. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it just seems oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. totally I'm, like unfiltered, I'm, unplanned, unthought out. I'm terrible on LinkedIn because it's because that unashamedly is, you know, humble bragging. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the big things on LinkedIn is when you write a post, you immediately like it and the algorithm will, will already start ticking for you. So whenever you write a post, like your own post, because then it will get into more people's timelines. It's yeah. crazy. So like 
Yeah, and and that's what you hear. You hear about this um, on LinkedIn. I mean, it happens on it happens on Instagram and it happens on other ones, but they'll have these pods where you have a group of high network people who have got big networks and they'll go, you know, they might go on a WhatsApp group and say, I've just posted and everyone will jump on and interact with it. And then LinkedIn will go, oh, this must be good content because people with a high network are sharing it, uh, are commenting or engaging on it. So then it amplifies yeah, that yeah. to a larger thing. And I mean, like it's, it's understanding how the system works, but it, you know, it's unfortunate because some people who create really good content will get just little to no engagement because they didn't play the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we all know who those people are. You know, there's a big media expert in New York. There's a great HR person. You know, they're all in the same part. Um, I've actually, I've, I've got rid of all of those people. I've unfollowed them all. Yeah, uh, Just because they heaps. were, <laughs> yeah, they were, they were cluttering up my timeline. And, you know, some people say that about, you know, some of the things I post because there's a couple of agencies that, I work with, as a designer I work with, and we like each other's posts. And there's, there's sort of like the difference is we're not a pod. There's a, in fact, there's a competitor who I work with who I think is really good. And, and we post a lot of their stuff out. And it's like, we're not a pod. We just think they're good. So if you're not going to use us, use them. Or there's a designer I like, and it's just like, he's brilliant. Just use him. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the difference. If you're, if you're honest and organic, then I think that that is... That is a really useful platform. But then you, you know, as a, as a, you know, if we're talking about small business owners, you have to think, what is the use of your time against any of these outlets? You know, it's the same as if you were buying media or if you're working with something. I always think what I used to have a boss who used to love, um, you know, when you do a project timeline in Excel and everything looks beautiful. Yeah, those Gantt charts or like the, yeah, yeah. the schedule and you have like the, it'll go across the page and there'll be like a collar, you know, down, down the rows and it will go across beautifully <laughs> yeah, yeah. with the different colors. Yeah. And, yeah, it's valuable for one meeting and then it's all doing it. <laughs> but I used to have a boss who absolutely loved these and these would take, you know, if I did it, it would probably take me two weeks, two days of work to do it. You know, it is not a good use of my time. I used to have a marketing manager who worked for me who was brilliant. She could knock him out really quickly. And I think we came to blows at once because it was kind of like, she was like, why, why don't you formalize this? Why don't you update this? And I was like, I'm not really, I'm not really that sort of, I'm a thinker, not a, Excel spreadsheet person. My time yeah. is, you pay me a lot of money. My time is not valuable for doing this because I don't give a shit about it. <laughs> it's going to take me a very long time to do it and it's still going to look a bit ropey. You know, I'm quite happy to get my, really, that's what, you know, if you've got marketing execs writing creative briefs, then get marketing managers, marketing directors, VPs working on the brief together and get the assistant yeah. to do the Excel spreadsheet. I know it's I know it sounds a little bit mean, but that's what they're there for. And that's one of the things that that, that you know I sort of we do a bit of change management as well. And one of the things that I see is you know roles have gone. People used to have far more. You used to have career progression. So you used to start doing one thing, and then you would learn the skills and grow up. Now I don't see I don't see people teaching. You know, I go in and teach people how to write briefs because no one teaches people how to write briefs. So you get a big da- gap between a director of marketing and marketing says people just expect you to get on with get on with learning new skills. Now I don't see you know you don't 
you don't necessarily get, you might get a marketing exec who becomes a marketing manager in the same business. Then they move somewhere else to become a marketing director. Then they move somewhere else to be a VP. There's no, there's no progression of skills within one sector. So, so it's, I just find the whole industry, there is a lack of learning. And I find this slightly worrying. You know, we invest in salaries, but do we invest in training as much as we need to? And that doesn't mean to be paid for training. It, it needs to be someone who is, you know, if you're more senior or more skilled in, in an agency or an industry, spending time with younger, less experienced members of staff actually teaching them. That's the sort of the whole apprenticeship thing. That's me getting old, isn't it? Just going. No, I like, I like it. And it's a good reminder because it's something that I, I notice. I, I really enjoy working. You know, we, we work quite closely, my team and I. So I've got two designers and we'll work quite closely on different projects and things like that. But I often take for granted, you know, that I've worked in a creative agencies for five years. So I know there's certain things on maybe the brand strategy side or the business strategy side that I just sort of had that, you know, assumed knowledge of and I won't explain why I'm making these decisions or why I'm saying these things. And it's, yeah, you sort of take for granted sometimes that some people, or even the client, like you, you might not educate them and you might have assumed knowledge that they know, you know, the different print finishes uh, or, you know, different, you know, the, 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 the reason why you spend time, you know, picking out the different colors so that if they do print on different, you know, different textures or different papers, it'll come out differently. Um, there's, yeah, I, th- I think the industry, there's a lot of assumed knowledge. Um, I guess it probably goes across lots of things, but like, Taking the time to actually just sit down with someone and explain something properly and, and actually teach them, I think, is, um, is really underutilized and sort of um, we gloss over quite quickly. And those are things that if you engage the client with, if you, if you share that this is why we're doing this, this is why this color is important, it connotes this is psychology behind it, the strategy, or this is because the media we're looking for, this is going to print well. There was always one about, you know, if you've ever got a red background, you know, printing black against it is not going to be a good color for it. You know, everything bleeds. It's if you actually explain this experience to it. There's, um, that's, that's another thing. I used to work on Discovery Channel. And one of our big, one of our big things to the audience, one of the insights was, was facts and figures. So we used to call it pop knowledge because the audience, you know, men of a certain age love sharing that sort of pub quiz fact that they can pass off as, as their own. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. the same yeah, yeah, with yeah. sort of see, social currency. It's the same with sort of yeah. clients and things. If you tell a client, you know, if you engage them with a, this is how we shoot it because this is the camera we use or this is how we work green screen, that's something they love. You know, they'll take home and they'll tell people that they've, you know, it's like a kid coming home from school with a star <laughs> on their book. They, they're going to be, you know, they've learned something new today and they want to share it. I always used to insist. So, so when I started... Um, with Discovery, we had internal clients and uh, they never used to take people, when they were filming, the creative department never used to take people on set, always used to be cold set, closed set. And I was very insistent with the production manager that I would be bringing all my clients down on set. And she was like, no way, no way. You're not talking to the director, you're doing this. And I was like, I am, because one, I'm paying for this, and two, I'm higher up there, I'm calling rank on this. Uh, and we got into quite a blow about it. And, it's, uh, and it was, it was that I don't need to, I don't necessarily need to show them 
filming. I don't need to be in the way. I don't need to slow anything down. What I need to do is take people who don't see the fun side of television, don't see the artisan that goes into this. What I need them to do is see how their money is spent. And I can guarantee you, next time you want budget to shoot, they are going to be 10 times more likely. So what I need to do is basic account management is I need to bring them down on set. They need to sit on one of those, you know, foldable chairs, preferably with director <laughs> or something written yeah. on the back. They need to go and eat something off services they need to see the lights on preferably if there's any talent in the room they can say hello or just wave and then i will take them for lunch they can be there for less than 30 minutes but they need to see where this money is spent and she reluctantly let me and then the, then they were around the office going oh my god we were down set on set on you know yesterday it was the most amazing day of my life and then she was suddenly like next time we go and ask for some money from them suddenly their checkbooks are out and she was like and then and she suddenly she suddenly then clicked and, and it went from being a this is what production to do to this is how the system works and then she was always like perfect i'm going to build every timetable i'm going to build 30 minutes in and she would be the one you know she would be there even if she wasn't on talkback she'd be meeting at the door with a headset on because it looked more like TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'd have had one of those, you know, those old-fashioned speakers if we could. Roll up, roll up. I love the idea of like giving that behind the scenes look or that glimpse, you know, the peek behind the curtain sort of thing. And it's it's probably something that lots of businesses take for granted and they probably could do. I mean, it's something that I've written about in the past of, of you know, the art of theatre or storytelling and brand building. But I think... Um, I think giving the glimpse uh, into you know why you do certain things. Like I remember we did a um, we did a custom identity for a, a client. It was like a custom logo, um, and we screen recorded um, you know the two days of editing that went into this typeface um, and showed it to them over you know a few minutes. And they were just like, "Wow, you know, if you just showed us the end product, uh, we would have just assumed it was just a font you found somewhere or a typeface that you bought. Um, now we can actually see, and they'll probably go and actually tell people that you know I've actually got a video of how this thing was crafted and created for us. Um, but you know, that's a small example, but it's something that we, yeah, I think I think lots of businesses could look at a way to to give their customers or clients a sort of a peek, you know, behind um, behind the scenes. And there is a payoff with that. We did, um, when I was at BBC Broadcast, I think it might have been Red B then, it was um, a privatised bit of the BBC. We made BBC have, you know, our national broadcaster have all those, the idents again, these little films that go into into shows. But obviously, they spend a lot of money on them and they, they, you know, they last for years and years. But there was a making of video of how they'd shot these beautiful, these beautiful um, and very good value for money, actually, idents. And... Um, it was shown to the people at the channel and they went, this is an amazing film. So it was made as a TV program to put on air, the making of. And he went, this is, this is, and it had, you know, some of it was shot in a beach of Turkey and there were, you know, it was proper shot on film and there was lots of crew and stuff. And they said, this is a really beautiful film. There's no way we're ever putting it on air because we can never let the audience see how much work or how much these costs. Because, you know, it's the sort of thing that on a public service thing, people question all the yeah. money. So they think it's yeah. wonderful once it's on air, but it's showing too much of the magic, you know, it's showing too much behind the curtain. People, you know, politicians will go, why did you spend so much money on this? Well, why did you fly to Turkey to shoot that ad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got beautiful beaches here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tim, thanks again for being so generous with your time. Before we wrap up, I'd love to know what some of your favourite books or you know, either podcasts or books, be it novels or business and branding books. Um, yeah, what, what have you got for us? 
The one I'm re- I've just lost the the name of the guy I'm reading at the moment. So so the one I am reading at the moment, which is a a, 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 a marketing book, is called The Chimp Paradox. I must find the guy's name because it's. We'll, we'll be able have to you find read it, it before? No, no, we'll be able to find it and put it in the show notes though. But I, I love the title. Yeah, The Chimp Paradox. So it's uh, it's by a guy called uh, Professor Steve Peters, and it's um it's kind of a bit of sort of it's all about the sort of psychology of your brain about the chimp bit of your brain which is that rushes into action and defines your decisions the computer bit of your brain that kind of like naturally processes stuff and the human bit which is your natural personality and i think it's because i jump into lots of decisions or or you know i get this anxiety and panic should i be doing this should i be there should i be agreeing to this what should i do and i think it's really it's a great book It's, it's he's done a lot of psychology for sports people for olympic medalists and it's about it's about about sort of that whole process of using your whole brain at the right time. I have to check it out. It seems it seems like it's a uh, a marketing take and maybe a, a shorter, less dry version of Thinking Fast and Slow by I think it's Daniel Kahneman. Um, he was the guy who I think started or did uh, won the Nobel Prize on um, yeah the the sort of the fast brain and the slow brain. Um, yeah, 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 it could so be. I think it must be, yeah, but I've I've sort of halfway through listening to it. It's incredibly dry, um, and I think I think a few other people have sort of summarised the concepts in a sort of a much more sort of easier to digest um, approach. Yeah, this guy is a, it's a really it's a really compelling read. It's really well written. But then I'm also so I'm also reading. I started reading the Harry Potter's in Danish. I keep going over page, page one, page one, page one, page yeah. one. And then I've just, I just read this amazing book um, by uh, an American author who I'd never heard of called um, Andrew Holleran, Dancer from the Dance, which is just, it's, it's this brilliant, uh, it's sort of this F. Scott Fitzgerald um, style book about sort of Fire Island in the 80s and 90s, the age of disco. And it's, uh, it's just a really, it's just so well written, which probably prompted me to write a, uh, a bizarre post about pineapples last week with a lot of semicolons in because I suddenly got the desire to write. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Tim, in closing, who's someone remarkable that you know that we should speak to? So I'm going to put you in touch with Nikki Bentley. So I know Nikki. I've known Nikki for quite a long time. We were on the board of Promax UK, which is the marketing industry for television promotions in the UK. Uh, and she used to work at BDA, which was a sort of a a design and strategy agency in the UK. And she set up her own um, her own agency a couple of years ago called Perfect Tribe. And what she does is she reps sort of design studios from around the world. So she's picked people that she really likes and respects, works very well with, and she sort of reps them to other, com- you know, companies on creative projects and stuff but what I think is more interesting as well is she's living in Lisbon at the moment and she's set up uh, a sort of a social um, maybe it's a kind of like a social networking but rather than being online well it is online but it's sort of like a physical social networking for creative and artistic people so she's doing you know going back to experiences taking an amazing venue and then hosting an event with a creative speaker where people actually go and talk. So I think that that is something that, you know, going full circle on, you know, what social is, going back to actually real world connections. Obviously not happening now with COVID, but I assume, yeah, yeah. I assume we'll be coming back very soon. But a very, very interesting person. She was also my flatmate for a while. We lived together for oh, about cool. two years, which was very funny and 
we watched a, a lot of crazy Saturday night takeaway and got curries. <laughs> curries, <laughs> curries, but with a bottle of Bollinger on the side. So I think oh, the best fancy. of both worlds. And mate, what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, so I was thinking about, I was thinking about a quote for you. And then I was going through sort of like all, uh, you know, should I get something classical, something Oscar Wilde, something profound? And I thought, no, I'm going to go straight into PR. So uh, the TV series, absolutely fabulous. Joanna, uh, Jennifer Saunders' character, Adina Monsoon, has a line, which is, I don't want more choice. I just want nicer things. And I think that is the, <laughs> the most profound thing you can do in marketing. There are so many simulacrums, so much just dirge out there. It's true. I just need something authentic. Sell me what I need and I will buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Well, Matt, it's been awesome fun talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Where can people learn more about you? So we have a website, which is www.thebriefdoctor.co.uk. Or if you just look up The Brief Doctor or Tim Hughes on LinkedIn, I post there quite a lot. That's probably the best format to find out what I'm doing. There's loads of videos and stuff about speeches I've done recently and stuff. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks again. Thanks very much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of DSR Branding Presents. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. Hit subscribe on your podcast app and stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you're listening on an Apple podcast, can I ask you a quick favor, please? I'd love a five-star review. It not only makes me feel special, but it helps other people like you find this podcast. We always appreciate good feedback. So if you enjoyed it, please share it with your network and tag me on LinkedIn or Instagram or send me an email. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. I hope this episode has inspired you to think differently.